0: So, Lord, teach us by your Holy Spirit as we read your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I was looking at the calendar today. I don't know uh, if uh, probably most of you don't know this, but 11 weeks from today is Christmas. So I want to be the very first one to wish you a Merry Christmas this year. And I know that we're not ready for it, but we are headed towards that season where uh, we're going to be celebrating Christmas and the birth of of Jesus and his first coming. And it's such a, a wonderful, magnificent truth that we as Christians, that we embrace and we celebrate at Christmas, and that is the coming of our Savior. And the Christmas story, what I hope and pray, and particularly as we'll be heading towards the holiday season, Thanksgiving and Christmas and then New Year's that the Christmas story would never grow old to us and, and just get mundane and boring. But when you think about it, the Old Testament prophets, as, as you go through the Old Testament books, that there was the prophecies given, and particularly as we went through the book of Isaiah, we finished the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters before we went into the book of Revelation, and, and there was those prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel which means God with us and then in chapter 9 of Isaiah the prophet Isaiah writes for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be wonderful counselor and mighty God and everlasting father and prince of peace and so the people were looking for the Messiah to come and, and Isaiah writes those prophecies 700 years before Jesus was born on that first Christmas night there in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread and the bread of life was born as we know the incredible story that was is recorded to us there in Luke chapter two. And and as Jesus was born, the the angel would say to those shepherds that were out in the field that uh, don't be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all peoples. You see, not just the people of Israel, but to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And I think about how wonderful that story is. And and it really, I hope, impacts our hearts as we think about it, as we celebrate it once again this year. And, And we know that as Mary was Just a young uh, girl, probably about 16 years of age, scholars believe. And she was told that she has uh, what is the child in her conceived of the Holy Spirit. And that announcement came to her. We read about that in Luke's narrative. And then in Matthew, uh, Joseph was told, who's betrothed to Mary, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she's going to bring forth a son, and he shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. And you see, for all that time, for for 600 years before that, the people of Israel had been in bondage. They were in bondage to Babylon and taken off into captivity for 70 years. But the the bondage continued under the Medo-Persian Empire and then the Grecian Empire. And then Rome was was ruling over Israel in the known world during the time that Jesus was born. And and as the announcement comes that born unto you this day in the city of David, David, a savior who is Christ, the Lord, and he's going to save his people. Jesus, Yahshua, his name means the Lord, thy salvation. And heaven looked down into that little manger that night and heaven named that baby Yahshua. This is the one who's really going to do it. This is the one that's going to free you from the bondage of sin. And you see, that was a greater need than being free from the bondage of Rome. And so the people had been looking for Messiah to come, and and as you read the Gospels, we know that he's the wonderful counselor because he stood on that hillside in Galilee, and he would cry out, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and come and learn of me. We know that he was mighty God as he fed the 5,000 with just a few fish and, and, and loaves. He's the everlasting father as he declared that the father and I are one and the prince of peace as he gives us peace with God because of going to the cross and dying for our sins and rising from the grave. And now as we come in faith, we're forgiven and we have right relationship with the Father. We have the hope of eternal life. We have peace with God. And then we have peace in our hearts as we live for Him. But He didn't establish the kingdom. And the rabbis is interesting uh, uh, at that time of the Old Testament as they would read the prophecies, they didn't quite understand because the prophecies in Isaiah particularly would speak about a suffering Messiah as you read Isaiah 53, for example, the one who would come as a lamb that was led to the slaughter. But then there's also those prophecies that were given that the Messiah is going to come and rule and reign and bring in the kingdom. So some of the thoughts uh, of those rabbis during that time was that perhaps there would be two messiahs that would come. That there would be the suffering Messiah and then the reigning Messiah. Uh, There was a thought that perhaps that uh, if Israel was worthy enough, then the reigning Messiah would come. But if Israel wasn't worthy enough, then the suffering Messiah would come. And that's why it's believed, some scholars, that the Pharisees, the dedicated ones, were so determined to keep every minute detail of the law and also concerning the Sabbath. Because some of them believed if we keep the Sabbath perfect, then the reigning Messiah is going to come. So they were looking for the Messiah to come. They were looking for him to, to set up the kingdom and, and to restore the nation of Israel. And we see that very clearly when Jesus rode into Jer- uh, Jerusalem in the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and we know that Luke very uniquely says that as he was making his way from the Jordan Valley up to Jerusalem that the people were expecting the kingdom of God to be established immediately. So he would stop at that point and he would give the parable of the minas which we're going to talk about in just a little bit. So Jesus the people didn't understand even the disciples They thought he's going to usher in the kingdom. Hey, can my son sit at your left and on your right? But he was talking about dying and suffering and that he would rise again after three days. But he also promised that he would come back. And he would come back in great power and glory as he would speak to his disciples there on that mount called Olivet, speaking about the signs of his coming and and, and that he would come again. Well, last time in chapter 19, if you were here, and you probably have read the chapter yourself, that we talked and looked at that event called the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we've spent all these weeks looking at chapter 6 through 19 that speaks of that final seven-year period that is formally called Daniel's 70th week that we read about the prophecy of the 70th week of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, that seven-year period right prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as we read chapter 19 last time, that we see that heaven exalts and and begins to praise because uh, the judgment of Babylon has come. There's the marriage feast of the lamb and Jesus, as we saw that that heaven opened up and he's on a white horse and the armies of God come with him. That's you and me. We are going to come back with the Lord. And so he comes on a white horse. He's going to destroy those as the nations of the world are in the northern Israel in the valley of Jezreel or the valley of Megiddo and they're fighting each other they will stop to fight him and he will speak and he will destroy the enemies of the Lord and there's going to be a second supper that we read the fowls of the earth will eat the flesh of those destroyed and then the antichrist and the false prophet that we've talked about going through the book of Revelation here are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And now as we move into chapter 20, it talks about what happens after the second coming of Jesus Christ. We know from the other prophecies of Scripture that Zechariah tells us that when Jesus comes back, he will touch down on the mount called Olivet, just east of where the temple was, and the mountain is going to heave in half. It's interesting that they found a fault not too long ago in the 60s that runs right down the middle of the Mount of Olives. And as it heaves in half, there's going to be a river that's going to flow from the Dead Sea to Jerusalem to the Mediterranean Sea. And we read those prophecies that in the millennium reign, what it's going to be like. And we know that the Dead Sea is going to come alive and there's going to be fish in the Dead Sea. And there's going to be actually fishermen that are going to fish out of it. If you go to the Dead Sea today, it's the lowest point on the face of the earth. Being the lowest point on the face of the earth, the Jordan River runs in to it, but it can't run out. So the water's stagnant. It is dead. is full of salt, but it's going to be teeming with life during the millennium reign. Jesus will then at that time judge the nations. We know that the Jews who are alive will be gathered uh, that they will recognize that Jesus is their Mashiach. And as Paul writes that in that day, all of Israel will be saved. You see, it is Paul that that would write in Romans chapter 11, has God cast away his people? He says, certainly not. God still has a plan for them. And that's the thing for you and I to remember when we do end time prophecy, Eschatology is what is what is called, that God has a plan for Israel and God has a plan for the church. And as we talk about the return of the Lord in the rapture of the church when he comes for his church, I believe, will take place before that tribulation period. And we know that Jesus would say that I come when you're least expected. And an hour you do not know. No one knows a day or the hour. And there's the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ all over the New Testament. And we talked about it quite extensively. But when in the second coming, we know it's going to come at the end of the tribulation period. It's going to come three and a half years after the Antichrist goes and proclaims himself as God and desecrates the temple. As you read Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, all that has taken place. And so we saw it in Revelation chapter 19. And we know that as Israel will be gathered, they will recognize Jesus as their Messiah that the nations will be judged and the millennium reign of Christ will begin that thousand year period when Christ will rule and reign here on the earth from Jerusalem so looking at chapter 20 again Jesus coming back destroys those who are fighting against him where those nations of Armageddon are gathered the Antichrist the false prophet we saw thrown in the lake of fire and we read in chapter 20 now verse 1 then I saw an angel coming down from heaven having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should dis, uh, deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished but after these things he must be released for a little while so there is this nameless angel that comes and binds satan uh, with a chain um it's not jesus it's not the archangel michael It's not a mighty angel that we've seen described to us in the book of Revelation. It's an unnamed angel. And he binds Satan, which will last for a thousand years, one single angel. It's not a host of angels. And the reason I bring that point out is because sometimes even Christians can kind of picture Satan as the opposite equal of God or or almost that way. And there's this you know, he has equal power and there's this cosmic struggle going on and God eventually is going to win out ultimately. This is not the Star Wars mentality, folks, you know, of, of the force and then, you know, the, the evil side and, and all of this. He will be Satan thrown into the bombless pit, the abyss, by an angel. There's a regular old angel is what I read here. And that bombless pit we have seen here in the book of Revelation, the the abuso, Uh, It's interesting that when Jesus was with his disciples and when they got into a storm, they thought they were going to sink and Jesus calmed the storm and and then they would go to the other side of uh, the Sea of Galilee where the area of Gadara and on the east side of the Sea of Galilee uh, where the Gadarenes were is a demoniac and he comes running down. There's actually Matthew says two of them and Jesus, as we know would say, you know, what is your name? And and legion, many demons. And, And the demons would beg Jesus not to have them be cast into the abyss. So this abyss that we saw in chapter 9 when the bombless pit is opened up and these demon-like locusts uh, come out and they torment men for a number of months. Uh, We saw the bombless pit again mentioned in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. So here Satan is bound up by an unnamed angel using one hand. He has a chain in the other. He has one. He He takes Satan and he you know, body slams them into the bottomless pit, you know, and then bounds them up. And he is bound up for a thousand years, and it says that it is sealed, the bottomless pit, for a thousand years. That means he is not going to get out. It is sealed. That's a very strong word, by the way. The same word that is used when the Bible says that you're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And as the Holy Spirit promises in you for the day of redemption, that's what you're learning, young adults, in Ephesians chapter 1. That It tells us of the security that we have in Christ as we come to him. So Satan is bound up and... And, and here we see that Satan has gone for a thousand years from the earth. The nations will be deceived no more. Revelation 12 says that he's the accuser of the brethren. He's called the deceiver. He's called in scripture the father of lies. He's called a murderer. And unfortunately, he continues to effectively deceive today. There will be no more deceiver during that time during the millennium reign. And things will be right, as Isaiah writes in chapter 65, a description of the millennium that the wolf lies down with the lamb and the snake doesn't bite people and the children will play in the streets and not be harmed. And no more war. It's going to be peace and prosperity. It's going to be wonderful, fantastic, glorious time during the millennium reign. There are 400 verses in the Old Testament that speak of the millennium reign of Jesus Christ, when he will come back and rule and reign now those who think that they can bring peace to this world we applaud their efforts and of course you know there's there's the world is in turmoil and upheaval and, and we applaud those who try to bring peace or negotiate for peace but ever since jesus ascended up into heaven after his resurrection there has not been one day of peace on this planet And there will not be any peace until the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, comes back and sits upon the throne there in Jerusalem. Now, during the tribulation and the return of Christ, there will be those who will survive, you know, the the tribulation period. Matthew 25 tells us of the judgment of the nations. And there will be the separation of sheep and goat. The sheep will be on his right hand and will enter into the millennium reign. The goat's on the left, and they will go away into everlasting punishment. And he will say, depart from me. Those alive in the millennium reign will begin to repopulate the earth. So for a thousand years, the earth is being repopulated. Now, some of the things that we know about the millennium reign from the passages of Scripture, I'm going to kind of uh, mention these and give you references so you can look it up yourself, because there's a lot of teaching out there today that takes us away from... Or suggest that there is going to be no millennium reign of Jesus Christ. More and more the church we're saying, seeing or is adopting amillenniumism. Am means no. No millennium reign. For a variety of reasons. Because the kingdom now theology and, and all kinds of things that are being passed along in the church today. But what we know from the millennium reign from the passages of scripture, and keep in mind that in Isaiah chapter 2, that Isaiah, in the latter days, these things will come to pass, Isaiah, write it down. And we know from Isaiah chapter 2, as well as Ezekiel chapter 17, that Israel will be the superpower of the world. It, it will be the leading nation uh, in all the earth. In the center of Israel will be the mountain of the Lord's house. During the millennium, the citizens of earth will acknowledge and submit to the lordship of jesus christ it will be a time of perfectly administer enforce righteousness on the earth again isaiah chapter 2 he's going to psalm 2 is that messianic psalm tells us he's going to rule with a rod of iron we know during the millennium there will be no more war Matter of fact, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, that they will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn of war no longer. It's interesting, a couple months ago, my family and I, we were in New York, and one day we went to the United Nations. And in the the entrance of the United Nations has that verse from Isaiah chapter 2. And it, it sounds nice, but that verse is not going to be full, you know, uh, come to pass or be fulfilled because of the efforts of the United Nation. It's when Jesus Christ comes back. During the millennium reign, King David will have a prominent place in the millennium earth ruling over Israel. That is from Isaiah 55, Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 4 through 11, Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 through 31, Ezekiel 37, verses 21 through 28, Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. During the millennium, there will be blessing and security for the nation of Israel. In the millennium earth, that's Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. In other words, no more enemies. Today, Israel is surrounded by enemies that want to destroy her. The millennium is a time of purity and devotion to God, Zechariah chapter 13 Verses one through nine. We also know from Zechariah chapter fourteen that the nations of the earth will come up and they will celebrate the feast of tabernacle there in Jerusalem every year. During the millennium there's going to be a rebuilt temple and restored temple service on the millennium earth as a memorial of God's work in the past, Ezekiel chapters forty through forty-eight, Amos chapter nine, verse eleven, Ezekiel chapter twenty, verses thirty-nine through forty-four the tribulation temple that we saw standing there in Revelation chapter 11 will be destroyed because it was defiled by the Antichrist. So the millennium is is important because it will demonstrate Jesus' victory and worthiness to rule the nations. And as we continue here in verse 4, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus And for the uh, word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It's interesting verse here. John sees thrones and those who sat on them. Now, who are they? Well, we're not sure. There are some have suggested that it's the 24 elders that we saw on 24 lesser thrones around the throne of God there in Revelation chapter 4 and judgment was committed to them this is probably speaking since the context is the millennium reign of those who are going to be ruling and reigning with christ it's interesting that in the seven letters to the seven churches you remember that there was an eternal promise given to each one of those churches to those who overcome so who's an overcomer Well, you go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. He who overcomes is one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So an overcomer is a believer. And to him who overcomes in that final church, the church of Laodicea, to him who overcomes, I will grant them to sit on my throne. So maybe perhaps it has something to do with that. We do know that Paul says something interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says that we're going to judge the angels, he talks about that. Hey, make sure that there's order. You know, he, he, there was a lot of problems to the Corinthians. And the angels are sensitive. Hey, you need to, to make sure that you can deal with these problems. They were suing one another and all this thing taking place. He says, make sure that, that you know, that you're able to do these things orderly because you're going to judge the angels. And I read that and I think, what does that mean? How did Paul know that? Of course, he's inspired by the spirit of God. So what it means apparently is that we're going to say, hey, you angel, go do this. You angel, go do that. They're ministering spirits, something like that. I don't understand it all. But here it says that we're going to rule and reign with him. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. One of the things I can't stand is when it comes to the Hollywood you know, kind of picture of somebody who dies and goes to heaven and they're bored and they want to come back. Um, Or sometimes the the idea is when we die, we go to heaven and we'll have wings and we're playing a harp on the cloud and we're all bored. Heaven isn't going to be that way at all. It's going to be so glorious and so wonderful. And we can't even imagine it. Paul says, I know a man that went to the third heaven. And he said, I saw things that were unspeakable. Can't describe it. So glorious. He wouldn't even dare. It's unlawful for me to do it. So it's going to be a glorious, glorious time. But here's the thing that I want to remind us of is that in Luke chapter 16, Jesus said, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who's going to commit to you the trust of the true riches? Interesting. Then in Luke chapter 19, as I told you, that they were expecting the kingdom of God to be uh, ushered in, to, to come immediately when Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem to make his triumphal entry. When they were waving the palm branches and crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were thinking, this is it. He's going to come. He's going to rule. He's going to usher in the kingdom. The Romans are going to get theirs. But when they saw that he wasn't going to do that, That is interesting a few days later to cry out, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. But before he went into Jerusalem for Passover, his last few days before he went to the cross, he told the parable of the mina. And he says that there was a ruler who who would leave and, and go to receive a kingdom to himself. And he gave each one of his servants a mina. And he would come back and they would give an account of of that mina, very similar to the parable of the talents. And we talked very briefly about it on Sunday. And they, you know, were to give account, those servants, if they invested what was given to them. And those who invested that mina, hey, see, I invested, here's 10 mina. And and the master said, well done, good and faithful servant, you're going to rule over 10 cities. And the one who said, here's five minas, Uh, I've invested the one you gave me, good and faithful servant you're going to rule over five cities so it's speaking about when the kingdom of god comes we're going to rule and reign and what we do for christ now has a lot to determine what we're going to do then so are you investing in the things of the kingdom sometimes people said somebody said to me not long ago well that doesn't matter wanting rewards, because we know, as we've talked about quite extensively in our studies, that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema reward seat of Christ, and we will be judged what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. And we know that 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that our works will be tried by fire and will be likened to wood, hay, and stubble or precious metals, gold, silver, precious metals. And what we do for Christ, motivated for our love for him, and desiring to further the kingdom of God and to exalt him and bring glory to him, we're going to be rewarded. Paul says, run to win the prize. This is real. So we are going to rule and reign with him. We're going to be rewarded. And what we do in this life is going to determine how we rule and reign. I don't understand. So here, as we've gone through these chapters, this is real here. And here, specifically, we read, it mentions the tribulation saints, that they will live and rule and reign with Christ. The Antichrist thought he was going to rule. He goes into the rebuilt temple. He sets up an image of himself. He proclaims himself as God to be worshipped as God. And he commands the world to worship him. But he ends up being destroyed and done away with. So the millennium reign of Christ for a thousand years where righteousness is going to cover the earth as Isaiah says, as waters cover the sea. Satan is in the abyss, but not yet in the lake of fire. And then in verse five, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection and blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now remember that when the scripture talks about the resurrection as it does in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we know that where people get confused in Christians about the resurrection is this, that they'll think, well, doesn't 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tell us to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord? Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that at the time of the rapture, rapture that the dead in Christ will rise first and then we here alive and remain shall be caught up, harpazoed where we get the Latin word rapturous, where we get the English word raptured, to meet the Lord in the air. So there's confusion there. Well uh, how does that work? We we're, Are we with the Lord or are we in the ground? And there's those who come up with false teaching that's called, called a soul sleep that when we die we, we sleep until the rapture of the church. Listen, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's a promise that we have. So when we take our last breath, when we pass away here on this side of eternity, believers go immediately to be with the Lord. And, and praise God. But I've done a lot of funerals where we go to the cemetery and we'll put that body, you know, it's in a casket or in an urn, we put it in the ground. So the resurrection, please keep in mind, is talking about eternal life, but it's talking to eternal life where we're going to get a new heavenly body. And that's what Paul's explaining there in 1 Corinthians 15 that because Jesus Christ rose from the grave, that he resurrected. That's our hope. Um, that we have the promise and the hope as believers that we are going to be resurrected as well. So at the rapture of the church, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we all shall be changed uh, from corruption to incorruption, from mortal to immortality, where our bodies will be raised up and will have new heavenly bodies. And so that's the resurrection. So here in chapter 20, he's talking about the first resurrection here. And, and, and it's interesting that Jesus described two resurrections. In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, he said, Do not marvel at this for the hours coming in which all who are in a grace will hear his voice come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So what we see in this chapter is that there's two resurrections that are spoken of. Now the first resurrection. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23, concerning the resurrection that will happen, each one in its own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are in Christ at his coming. That's all the first resurrection. You want to be part of the first resurrection. And those of you who are believers, you will be a part of the first resurrection. That the Lord will ascend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So that is the first resurrection. And after talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the longest chapter in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul concludes by saying, Therefore, because of this. Remember, whenever you see that word, therefore, stop and see what it's there for. Because of the resurrection and the promise of the resurrection, you be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So the first resurrection, it's interesting that the rapture of the church in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it gives us indication that the old tribulation saints are going to be resurrected at the end of the tribulation period and also the tribulation saints as well during that time. So each in their own order. So the resurrection taken place, and then in verse 7, now then the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is the sand of, you know, the sea. So the thousand years are over, Satan was bound up, the bombless pit, that is the abuso, was sealed, and all of a sudden he's let go. He's loosed. And this is amazing what we just read here. He leads one last rebellion. And he takes many living in the millennium with him. Those who numbered the sand of the sea. Nations and peoples deceived. He mentions Gog and, and Magog in, in here in, in verse 8. Uh, Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle whose numbers the sand of the sea. Now people again get confused. They think is this the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, Gog and Magog mentioned there. This is not Ezekiel 38 and 39. Ezekiel 38 and 39 will take place before the millennium reign. And we've talked quite a bit about Ezekiel 38 and 39. Matter of fact, it may be the next major war in the Middle East. There are stage-setting events taking place even as we speak Even right now, that we're seeing the confederation of nations that are going to come against Israel, led by Russia and Turkey and Iran, and they're going to come to the mountains to the north. Guess who's just north of Israel today on their border in Syria, Russia, Turkey and Iran coming together, this confederation of nations that will include also others of North Africa in this massive invasion against Israel. And God will intervene and destroy those armies. We've talked about quite extensively, probably New Year's Eve prophecy update. I'll be giving you some updates on what has taken place there. Because it is absolutely amazing that those events that are, are coming and shaping together, we don't know exactly when the, the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 spoken of is going to take place. But it may take place at the beginning of the tribulation period. Some say in the middle of the tribulation period. Some say before the tribulation period. I've told you what my thoughts are. I think it's going to happen before the tribulation period. But we'll do an update on New Year's Eve. So you got to come back, all right? That'll be in 12 weeks, all right? <laughs> <laughs> so here, the first resurrection is spoken of. And then the thousand years Satan has let out leads this one last rebellion against, you know, the nations. The people born in the millennium, uh, they still there needs to be an inward embrace of his lordship. I marvel at this. It really shows the depravity of man. We say that, you know, there's sinful rebellion because of the condition of the environment around us. Here it's a perfect environment. For a thousand years, no violence, no wars, no evil. Jesus is ruling, reigning on, there in Jerusalem. And still many rebel against God at the first opportunity. The problem isn't just environment. It's the heart. And now they have a choice they they didn't have. Remember in the millennium reign that he's going to rule with a rod of iron. It's going to be an enforced righteousness. And all of a sudden, they have a choice to rebel. And this is the last rebellion. Accepting and aligning with Satan and and his lies. And listen, why is this? Because God is love. And love demands a choice. When I asked my wife, Sue, to marry me 30 years ago, I didn't force her to marry me. I didn't hold a gun to her head and say, you have to marry me. She had a choice, and I'm thankful she said yes. And love demands a choice, and people are going to make their choice, even in the millennium reign, to rebel against God. That's amazing to me. So Gog and Magog, names associated with rebellion against God and God's people. And we read in verse 9, they went up to the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beasts and the false prophets are And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So those rebellions around Jerusalem come against God's people. They're devoured with fire. It doesn't last long. And then Satan's thrown into the lake of fire, Gehenna. With the Antichrist, the false prophet, this false trinity being the first to be in that final resting place where they are tormented day and night forever and ever. It is also the final resting place of the unbeliever which is part of the second resurrection. You don't want to be in the second resurrection. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was no, found no place for them. After the millennium, after Satan's final rebellion is crushed, he's thrown into the lake of fire. We see the earth and the heavens will flee. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13 tells us that the heavens and earth will melt with a fervent heat with a huge... Nuclear reaction, the explosion is going to take place. Colossians chapter 1 declares that not only are all things created by him, but all things consist through him. In other words, that word consist means holds together. He holds everything together. So scientists wonder, how does that atom, you know, the light particles, how do they keep from repelling and just exploding? And they have all kinds of complicated theories. Well, here's a very simple answer. Jesus holds it all together, every atom and one day he's going to let it go and it's just going to go up and explode in the big nuclear reaction the heavens and the earth that we now know are going to melt away in a fervent heat but I want to bring it home a little bit closer to us tonight that all things consist he has preeminence over all things except for one thing and that is a heart that rebels against him because he will not force you To follow after Him. Oh, He'll chasten you. He'll go after you, but He won't force you. You can say, I'm going to live the way that I want to live. And I'm going to do what it is that I want to do. But you're going to reap the terrible consequences of it. And He desires to hold your life together. If you will let Him. And allow Him to be preeminent in your heart. Because he created you for his good pleasures. And he will hold your life together as you allow him and go to him and look to him. So the earth and heaven that we now know will burn up. And that's why I remind you, don't be, you know, prioritize, you know, the things of the world, you know, because it's going to go away. It's going to burn up. The cars, the homes, everything. John sees a great white throne and him who sat on it. This is great and awesome, a powerful scene. John chapter 5, verse 22, that Jesus said, The Father has committed all judgment to the Son. In verse 12, I saw the dead and small great standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now this is the great white throne judgment. Those who are, are standing before it. The sea gave up his dead. Death and Hades gave up the dead. Again, we we've talked about uh, Luke chapter 16. It, it, it speaks of Lazarus and the rich man, how Lazarus went to paradise and, and the rich man went to the, the other side of Hades, which was the place of the unrighteous dead. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he told the thief on the cross, you'll be with me in paradise, paradise, Abraham's bosom. He escorted the thief, if you would, down through, you know, to, uh, be- you know, before he ascended, he first descended to paradise. That chamber is empty right now because Jesus died for our sins. The Old Testament saints looked forward to the cross. And because Jesus had not died for their sins, the, the Old Testament sacrifices and animals was a to. The- cover sin, but didn't take away sin. And as the book of Hebrews chapter 9 reads, and yesterday was Yom Kippur in Israel, the day of atonement you read about in Leviticus chapter 16 in Israel, because they don't have a temple, is a day of reflection. And in the day of atonement in the Old Testament, the priest would go in and make atonement, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And the author of Hebrews says, listen, that wasn't enough. There had to be a superior sacrifice and that was Jesus who presented his blood not in the tabernacle made of hands but in the heavenly tabernacle. And he did it once and for all. And now to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. But that other side of Hades that they will be resurrected in the second resurrection and stand before the great white throne judgment and they will be sentenced to outer darkness. Very sobering here. Very sobering. There's going to be no, people say, when I stand before God, I got a few things to tell them. There's going to be none of that going on. There's going to be no criticism on that day. Matter of fact, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we've done that now. But those at the great white throne judgment will be forced to acknowledge him that he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is real. And so the great white throne judgment that we won't stand at, but we will stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ. Listen, I want to wrap it up a couple things here. Number one, those verses that I gave you, review them concerning the millennium reign of Jesus Christ because... What I see growing in the church is, is is the you know thought and the teaching of there is going to be no millennium reign. We're seeing that the doctrine of kingdom now theology is spreading more in the church today. Um, you know, it, it, it's spreading more in even evangelical churches. And it's influenced by different doctrines, the new apostolic reformation that's very popular today, the latter rain movement, the, the dominion theology, and it all takes on various, the spectrum is wide. There are those who say, well, the kingdom of God is here, it's just not in its full consummation. But there are those who go way outside the boundary of scripture and you will hear it and you need to be wise in this, what the scripture says. There are those who say, well, we believe the kingdom now theology In some of the groups and the extreme teaching that takes us outside the boundary of the scripture says, well, when Adam and, and Eve sinned that. Uh, they lost control. God lost control, and and he wants to get dominion back. He wants to g- get everything back. So he's looking for overcomers or Joel's Army is what they're called or, you know, other names that are given to them that they are going to help bring the earth back. And, and so you have dominion theology. You have manifested you know, Sons of God out of Kansas City. All these things have been around for a long time. And they say that what's going to happen, Joel's army, the overcomers, uh, this covenant people, there's going to be a group. And they're going to come and and they're going to begin to take over the world. The church is going to infiltrate the government and, and begin to bring healing to the hospitals. And the kingdom of God is going to grow and grow. And then we're going to usher in the second coming of Jesus. Christ sounds wonderful but the Bible doesn't say that whatsoever and I have met those who have called and 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 talked to me and they say well we're prophets and we're going to infiltrate you know the governments and the school boards and all of this listen I think that Christians should be involved in politics if God has called them we want godly leaders don't we But to think that the church is going to take over the world eventually and infiltrate the governments and heal everyone in the hospital, then we're going to usher in the king, that God kind of lost control, you know, when Adam and Eve, and he's waiting for this covenant people to come. To first of all, to suggest that God lost control in any way is ludicrous. He reigns supreme. He is sovereign, always realize that. And he has the divine plan in his timetable. He's not dependent on us. Second of all, what I see is that it's going to get worse. Didn't we just go through chapter 6 through 19? All these these, things that will take place during the tribulation period. And then we also know that Jesus said there will be these signs, they're like labor pains. And we're seeing that it is perilous time. Evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse. That in the latter times, that people are going to depart from the faith and give themselves over to the doctrines of demons. That, that we are warned about this. And there's going to be a false church that's going to be on the scene before the second coming of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't line up with scripture. So be careful. And many of them believe that there is no rapture. That... Some I've even heard teach that the rapture is just kind of an emotional thing. Like, you, you know, you're raptured up in the moment and when the Lord comes back and so excited. And that's not being honest with what the scripture says at all. In Acts chapter 8, harpazo, a snatching that the Lord and we who are alive, First Thessalonians chapter 4, and remain will be caught up to to meet the Lord in the air. That word harpazo is used in one other time, and that is Philip when he, in Acts chapter 8, baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. It says that he was caught up, a physical caught up. He was gone. So there is a rapture. And there are those who are saying that the Bible doesn't speak of rapture. The Bible is very clear about the blessed hope And the Lord says, I come at a time that you least expect. So be careful about some of the things that are being said and that we're going to take over the world and it's going to get better and all these other things. It's not going to get better. The world's not going to get more rosy. Even in the millennium reign, we see this rebellion. Jesus Christ is going to come back and establish his kingdom. That's the millennium reign for a thousand years. So keep it in the context of scripture. And there are those who, you know, in the new apostolic reformation, that's very popular. There's nothing new about it. That, you know, super apostles and prophets are going to rise up in the church and then they want to run the church and they have the authority and all this other stuff. And we've seen it come in the 80s and 90s with the manifest of sons of God. Now it's resurging again in dominion theology and lateran movement and on and on it goes B verse in the scripture, and that's why we've gone through the book of Revelation. To see that nowhere does it talk about the church is gonna take over the world. And also they, they believe that Israel doesn't have a place in end time prophecy, that the church is Israel. So there's a lot of problems with those teachings. Second thing is this, this is real. And I hope that we would have a heart for those who are lost. Because the great white throne judgment is real, and it breaks our hearts when we we have those that we love and care for, that they don't know the Lord. They will stand at the great white throne judgment if they continue to reject Jesus Christ. Eternity is real. So I want to encourage you. You pray for those who are linked to you in your life. For family members, for your kids, for your grandkids. You pray for coworkers and neighbors. And you keep praying for them and look for the opportunities to share with them. You know, we're getting to a culture that says don't share your faith, don't share the gospel. And if you do and you say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then you're being exclusive and you're hateful and all this. Just give them truth is give them truth when you have opportunity. Because I think people are looking for truth. And I think they're seeing how messed up and mixed up this world is getting. And that is the great commission of the church. What I pray for us here at Calvary Chapel, you know, I was reading an article uh, where Dr. Jeremiah uh, was being interviewed and he said he believes that the church in America is really losing its way because it's about numbers and entertainment and, and all of this. May we be like Paul who said, I came preaching nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's remember what we're about. And then on Sundays we talk about a family that the world needs to see a family that's different than, you know, what we see in the world. Share the love of Jesus Christ with others. Because I can't imagine what this is going to be like, the great white throne judgment. And there is an eternal separation from God. There are those who are teaching. There's no hell. It's just annihilation. You know, God wouldn't send anybody to hell. There is the lake of fire that those who are unbelievers are going to be cast into. So let's care for people. And let's share with them the gospel. Let's let's pray for them. And I pray for a mighty revival in these last days. I pray that we can be a part of that. And that the church would stand on the good news. You know, God did everything so that you can spend eternity with him. He even sent his son to die for you. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time in this chapter that's very important for us, Lord, to understand that what a wonderful future we have as Christians that we are going to have you take us. If if you... and our bodies come to an end here that to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But there is going to be a generation of Christians that you're going to come for when you come for your church. And then you're going to come with your church in the second coming. And we're going to all be with you, Lord, in ruling and reigning. And we don't know exactly what that means, but we're going to be given responsibilities. And we're going to help reign and, and, and administer righteousness. And then the new heavens and the earth, new earth are going to be created. We'll be with you for all eternity. But we also know that we will stand at the Bema reward seat of Christ, not to be judged for our sins, but what will you have done in this life for you? So I pray that the mina that is given to us, and I believe the mina is the gospel, the talents in Matthew 25, the gifts that he's given to us, that we would invest them for you. May we see, may we say here tonight, I don't want to build my life on wood, hay, and stubble. I don't want this church to be built on wood, hay, and stubble. But we want to be built upon the solid foundation, the rock, Jesus Christ. We want our works, when they pass through the fire, and none of our works are perfect. We know that, Lord. We want to have precious metals. We want to live for you and prioritize you, be used of you. Not to be distracted so much by the cares of the world and life and how comfortable we can be. We want to be committed, especially in the days when we're seeing the upheaval, when we see the storm clouds gathering, when we see these signs, the birth pangs around us that is crying out to us that the Lord is coming back and that we would have a heart for the lost that are in our lives, because we all have a mission field. We would pray for them, share with them, that we would be a witness with our lives. Lord, that they would see something of you being worked out in our lives, the love that we have, the gentleness. Daniel, it says that he had an excellent, excellent spirit. They, They knew that. And may we have an excellent spirit within us because we're looking to you. It's it's not a haughty, proud, prideful kind of way, but Lord, just being yielded to you and open to you and led by you to have a heart for people because these things are real that we're reading. Eternity is real and there's going to be two resurrections. And I'm thankful that we're here tonight that as believers, we're going to be part of that first resurrection. And I do want to pray if there's anyone that's here tonight or listening to this message or on the radio later. That you've never given your life truly to Jesus Christ. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you thought you were fine, a good person. Maybe the other side of the spectrum, you thought God could never forgive you. Jesus died for all of your sins. And whoever you are, you need Jesus He's the only one that can save you, not a church, not yourself, not anyone else. He is Lord. He is the Savior of the world. And he died for your sins and he rose again. And he's saying, come, believe in me. And if you've never done that, we want to give you the opportunity right now to do that. To pray right where you are sincerely that Jesus, I come to you I repent, I quit going the direction I'm going, the way I was thinking, and I now, I understand that Jesus, you are my salvation. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on that cross for me. You were put into that tomb, you rose again, your life speaking to my heart, and I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you saving me for dying for me your love for me and I want to know you and walk with you and I thank you for this new beginning in Jesus name and listen if anybody prayed that prayer because I know there are people that are coming up at the services saying I've made a decision for Christ we want you to do that tonight the prayer team that will come up and Lord may all of us as we leave this place just marvel at the incredible future that we have, but also having a heart for those. There's going to be a harvest. And the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. And we want to labor for you. So, Lord, bless our evening, the rest of our week. Keep us safe on the roads. Tomorrow the first winter storm.